Welcome to the All Creation Podcast. I'm Chris Searles, co-founder and executive editor of All Creation. Today we're speaking with Reverend Lewis Tillman. Reverend Tillman is the pastor of St. Philip's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Baltimore, Maryland, the oldest African-American Lutheran church in North America. His strong passion for ministry has already led him to positively impact food justice, eco-justice, racial justice, financial literacy, and Black liberation theology in the communities he works. Lewis is somewhat of a superhuman, quote, serving the community in unprecedented ways. He serves in the Air Force. He's literally helped save hundreds to thousands of lives, having led his church to distribute over half a million COVID care kits, along with food deliveries and over 60,000 COVID vaccinations. He's pastored in Philadelphia, Minneapolis, Chicago, Virginia, and now Maryland. He is a prominent leader in the ELCA eco-justice movement, the climate action movement, and in an earlier part of his career, he led the creation of more than 30 community gardens. There's a lot more I can say about Reverend Tillman, but let's let him do the talking. Lewis, thank you for being here and welcome to the All Creation Podcast. We are excited and honored to have some time to talk with you. Can we start out by you talking a little bit just about your last couple of weeks? Because I know um, you probably worked 80 or 100 hours around Memorial Day. And I know that you have been giving so much time to your local community and your local church, to the bases that you serve or the base that you serve, to the military, to your, you know, your married life, to your church life, to your pastoral life, and all these things. Can, can you just give us a little bit of an overview of the very recent life of Lewis Tillman? Definitely, definitely. Um, so, I definitely want to start off by just again, uh, thank you, Chris, so much for this opportunity to just uh, engage in dialogue because I believe nothing can work without transparency. Transparency can only come from conversation and dialogue, no matter how difficult or critical it may be. So this is uh, definitely a humbling experience and an honor and privilege for me. Uh, my past few 30 days, if you will, have been uh, chaotic, but celebratory at the same time. I feel like I don't sleep enough. Uh, I don't know if that has something to do with PTSD or if that just has something to do with historical trauma, which we'll get in a little bit later on in the conversation. But uh, I've been just bearing so many individuals from different age groups and, and topographies and categories, uh, mostly due to the residual effects of COVID-19, which I have so much to share about that, of how I feel as though too many of our, uh, I would say, faith-based individuals that reside in the United States of America, they put all their faith and all their trust and their hope and their beliefs in the CDC and the GOP and the GOV, but for some reason they completely forgot about the GOD that we serve. So with that being said, I have been seeing an influx and increase uh, all over the Mid-Atlantic, particularly within the uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia, Northern Virginia area, Baltimore, B-more, shout out to B-more a lot of issues around uh, lack of equal access to PPE, lack of equal access to free COVID-19 testing, uh, which ends up creating a residual effect of individuals who are not getting tested, meaning that test results are not being portrayed accurately, uh, but rather inaccurately. And then many folks from the African descent community, uh, if you will, uh, that are not getting tested and not getting PPE, which means they're not going to do the vaccine. Uh, some of that comes from uh, the experiments at John Hopkins Hospital that have just been lingering since 
uh, way before 1968. Um, but we also see that the Tuskegee experiments also exist. So we're, we're seeing a, a lack of African descent, Black African American uh, historical congregations and clergy that are encouraging their members, their constituents, uh, their disciples, if you will, to get these tests, to get these vaccines. Um, they're just saying, uh, you know, just do what you can at your own risk. And some people are just, um, uh, they're just, uh, they have the strong phobia of being outside. So to kind of circle it back, it's created so much on my agenda, on my plate. I've been doing nothing but just, uh, I feel an average of about 12 to 16 funerals a week. Um, mm. Wow. That, that's been exhausting even that's though it looks like right right exactly it looks like it's just about maybe two funerals a day um mm -hmm. i've kind of been now dubbed as the uh the community uh clergy who is going to do a lot of sacramental uh rites and a lot of sacramental uh, ceremonies as well also being a part of uh the united states uh, air force being a part of the military uh, a lot of veterans reach out to me. I used to work in the VA, uh, Hampton Veteran Affairs Medical Center in the domiciliary where veterans are dealing with co-concurring conditions around PTSD, military sexual trauma, homelessness, um, and other psychotic uh, issues and, and dimension orders uh, that can be found within the DSM-3-5. But the challenge with all that, uh, I've learned so many gifts and skills of how to work with our um, our heroes in this country, our, our veterans uh, that are not being treated enough uh, with enough dignity and respect. So I felt like all leading through Memorial Day, all before Memorial Day, just these past 30 days, I've had so many vets who have reached out to me for pastoral counseling, for pastoral therapy, spiritual guidance. They're dealing with issues like moral injury, meaning that they did something while they were in the service that they regret. Uh, but they were told they were ordered to do that. And they're trying to figure out within their counter-transference, within their projective identification, if we look at um, uh, Sheldon Cashin's uh, object relations therapy, of how are they going to make it in life? How are they going to uh, reduce the recidivism rates? How can they get the help that they need because they feel as though the VA is not helping them? So me being kind of on the outskirts of the VA now, um, being in civilian capacity, uh, really working with lay leaders to develop disciples instead of make members, uh, that's really increased a lot of my load. Uh, my wife, we, we've almost been married a whole year now. Uh, she's seeing in the Department of Housing where she works that uh, the system is, uh, I don't wanna say rigged, but the system was not set up for the advancement of people of color or for the advancement of people of African descent and that both her and I were always having these amazing conversations and curating dialogue around uh, how do we create uh, an equal access win, an equal access uh, to opportunities for people of African descent to win in COVID-19. I believe that this is a particular season that we're in where people who are in poverty and people in the lower middle class who are of color have never seen this much money and this much opportunity uh, ever in their whole life. But because their mind has not been trained, they have not been given the tools for success. Somebody didn't give them a fish, but they taught them how to fish, but they're not showing them the right ponds to go and get their supper for 
these individuals, they don't have financial literacy skills, so they end up blowing all their money right then and there. When they're seeing a thousand plus dollars deposited in their bank account from the US Treasury or from uh, unemployment, they've never seen that much money before. They've never seen just an extra thousand or extra 2,000, 3,000 plus the stimulus check. And they're trying to just stimulate the economy and just do whatever they want. Instead of what I would suggest, which is my, my original background was in finance, where I, it also has increased a lot of my time this past month. I'm teaching people in the community basic financial literacy skills. How do we get you to trust the banks again? How do we get you to invest in the market? Instead of holding $10,000 that you got over the course of COVID-19 uh, over this relief uh, in a savings account that's only going to get you a goose egg, how do we get you to start investing in mutual funds, into ETFs, index funds, even just place in a money market so you're getting more than 0.002%? Uh, uh, how do we get your, your credit on the right track? How do we make sure that you actually have a positive network so that you don't look like $100,000 because you have the car that you're leasing, you're living in a house that you can't afford, but you're actually creating wealth so that we can have this conversation and put into practice as people of African descent, how do we create generational wealth? Because when I think about the creation that God placed us in, and I really do uh, believe that in Ecclesiastes, uh, the third chapter, verse uh, two, uh, where we see this whole seasons and time and all Kairos and Kronos having this battle, uh, verse two says that there is a time to be born, a time to die, a time to be uprooted, and a time to be planted. This particular season that I've been in this past 30 days, God has really been challenging me I've uprooted you from places of comfort time and time again over the past 30 years, but I'm planting you into places and it's up to you to see if you're going to water those seeds so that they can produce good spiritual fruits, fruits of leadership, fruits of prophecy, fruits of uh, uh, vision and provision. So those are so many of the things that I see myself uh, dealing with metaphysical dilemmas and issues over the past 30 days to see how do I best fit into God's plan of action and not Lewis's plan of action. That's incredible. That's just incredible. So let's go back to the very first thing you said. Definitely. A dozen or more funerals a week. Right. Um, I just want to highlight that. And I know people that are listening heard that, but this isn't just inside your church. This is across multiple spectrums of working as a, a chaplain in the military probably serving the broader community in Baltimore. Um, is that right? So it's all over, I would say, the mid-Atlantic. Um, some of this is when we went viral because of COVID-19, where we shut the church down and I made the executive decision to continue to do virtual worship services um, from May 15th of 2020 all the way to, uh, so, excuse me, March 15th of 2020 all the way to May 2nd of 2021, uh, we had such a growing population and growing viewership. Uh, I had individuals who had never even been to the church, never been to Baltimore, but they lived within the North Carolina, like, like Charlotte, North Carolina, all the way up to Wilmington, Delaware, uh, mm. that were reaching out to me um, through our website or just reaching out to me. Somebody gave them my contact info, my email, 
And they said, you know, I've been following you since uh, Easter of 2020. I've been following you since Mother's Day of 2020. I've been following you since Christmas. Uh, I've been following you doing this, doing that. Didn't know that this was Lutheran. I don't know nothing about no Lutherans, but um, I like the message that you bring. I like what you're doing with your ministry. I like to see what I'm reading about what you're doing around environmental justice, environmental racism work, around financial literacy work, just around health and wellness. Um, I'm going through this. Can you talk with me? Can, can you pray with me? And then uh, I hate to make it like it's a business, but my clientele game reached uh, a new height, a new level. So I'm having individuals that are finding out stuff about my story. They're reading about me. Um, I have all these articles out about me that I can't even keep track of. Uh, my, my mother and my father, they, sometimes they're the ones telling me, hey, have you read that before? My wife's telling me, she's sending me articles like, in real time, like, did you know this was published about you? Didn't even know. Uh, but because folks are just getting our name or hearing my name uh, or my name is out there, they're asking me to do pastoral services for them. So some people are asking me to do baptisms for their child. Uh, some are asking me to do funerals. Uh, some are asking me to do memorial services. Um, and because I don't set a rate for what I do, it's more of a free will offering. Uh, even if I have to travel, uh, that word got out too. Most of them, they see pastors as poverty pimps because the church has really failed so many communities even before COVID, but COVID just unveiled uh, the mask that was <laughs> in front of a lot of us. Uh, so I, I see myself really helping a lot of different communities within this time frame of all different sectors. But yeah, uh, to answer your original question, I, I have seen myself uh, really planting a lot of seeds in East Baltimore, which is um, home of redlining uh, for uh, the United States. Uh, it's also the same area where the, I've never seen this before, but uh, the largest demographic ethnically in that city of Baltimore, Maryland are people of African descent, uh, predominantly African-Americans. So it has such a rich culture, but it's always been the shadows of DC and Philadelphia. So when people ever do hear about um, what churches are doing, there's usually like three mega churches that folks just kind of tie themselves to. There's uh, two historical black colleges and universities people know about that work with in Baltimore. But when it came to COVID-19, I mean, we've still stayed in the shadows unless people just want to talk about Hopkins Hospital, Johns Hopkins Hospital. So uh, these funerals that I've been doing each and every uh, day, it feels like each and every week. I had one Saturday, I had four funerals and then I had to jet down to North Carolina and do two funerals the next day. Um, and you're doing all this within the CDC guidelines and within my own parameters too. So if CDC is saying, oh yeah, nobody has to wear a mask if they've been vaccinated. I'm like, now nah, we're keeping those masks on because we're nowhere out of this, this pandemic. Um, <laughs> rates are still going up in our community. They're still mm. going up across the country. Uh, and just to go back to my original piece, uh, that there's a lack of equal access to COVID-19 testing, to PPE supplies, and this vaccine rollout where a lot of individuals, no matter how great the incentive is, they do not trust the vaccine, thus they're not going to get it. So I don't see herd immunity coming at any time in the year 2021. Hopefully I'm wrong, I really do, but I just don't see it coming at this time. So it's really increased 
my level. Um, I'm expanding as much as I can, but I've also been stretched too thin. So I'm just trying to figure out um, how can comfort and growth exist at the same time? And I just don't believe that they do, but I'm very thankful for the creator that I do serve that is allowing me to be stretched where I'm coming out of my comfort zone in different sectors. But I also believe that I'm growing in different areas that I wouldn't have been able to if COVID-19 didn't exist. I want to jump on all that and tie it to our, our theme here. I, I want to ask you about, first of all, our topic for this issue is the apocalypse and sort of exploring the idea of it. And I came to you with the, probably one of the hardest questions in the world to share. I'm going to use the terminology of uh, African-American, one African-American's perspective on what you wish America knew about Black America or about African-Americans from the standpoint of moving forward. We've, we've been through the year of, of George Floyd and, and the Chauvin verdict and, and Black Lives Matter, and we've seen people come together to bring more justice and equality into our society here in the United States. But we know we're nowhere near where we need to be. I'm not even sure how to talk about that yet. But what I recognize first and foremost is that you have a rootedness and a prophetic voice, an energetic voice that is nurturing people, that is helping people to find their own North Star or their own inner truth about what they need. And I'm, I'm really curious in a, in a few contexts here, you know, if you're, you're overtasked physically and you're showing up day after day after day Beyond that, you've had, I'm sure, these transformational experiences on a personal level that, as you say in that sermon I mentioned when we were talking before we started recording, how can anyone find their connection to, uh, I'll say, enlightenment or to enlivenment without having had a real trial, a real tribulation? And so I'm, I'm assuming you've been through some hard times. And I want to try and tie all that together as a, as a a whiteboard of topics for you to talk about how you find rootedness and direction to be a leader day after day after day. What personal experiences led you on this path into ministry, into trying to serve your, your Christian view, your role as a minister in the context of being a person that is, is um, subjugated historically here in this country and I see you as being a real evolutionary leader that you have found a higher ground that you are able to say to people like me, things that I know I need to learn. I know I need to go after a, a better version of myself. Can you talk about where that rootedness comes from and, and what personal experiences led you into the ministry thus far? Wow. Yeah. I thought we were going to start off easy, but it's all good. I, I, I got love for you, Chris. It's all good. Um, so just some of the, the, the background of my context growing up, um, I'm, my parents are New Yorkers. Uh, mother's from Harlem, pops from Washington Heights. Uh, they, they moved in the late seventies to Atlanta for my mother to pursue education. Uh, they left everything that they knew and just tried to uh, essentially Ecclesiastes 3.2, they, they were uprooted from comfort, New York City, uh, and planted in um, Atlanta, Georgia, um, 
not too far after segregation has now come to an end. Uh, we're looking at probably 11 years after King has been assassinated. Uh, so with that being said, uh, they're trying to figure out the best way of how are they going to survive? How are they going to make it? How do they not become a stigma because they were the first ones in their family to ever go to school, first ones in their family to ever make it, uh, first ones in their family to ever leave the nest. Um, they had my oldest sister um, and the closest church in proximity was a black Lutheran congregation. Um, my, my parents did not grow up Lutheran. They, they never heard of Lutheran, didn't know anything about it. Uh, but the closest church in driving and walking distance was black and Lutheran. And they realized, oh, wow, church is only like 60 minutes. We'll, we'll, we'll stay with that. <laughs> you know, and that's what the, the Eucharist and communion and everything. Then they moved to Savannah, Georgia. They have my second oldest sister, who is a Lutheran pastor. Uh, and they have myself. Um, again, closest church in proximity to where they relocated from Atlanta to Savannah, black and Lutheran. Uh, and I was born, uh, just to show my age in the game, I was born after all these predecessor bodies. So after the, uh, the year 1988. So they don't know what ELCA, all that is, but it is what it is. Then I'm two years old, we moved to Atlanta. Um, while, when I was in Atlanta, I started preaching at the age of 15. Um, and this was more on a, a kind of quarterly basis. Uh, the pastor just saw something in me and said, um, I see that you have gifts, they're not polished, but um, I think that this could be an opportunity for you. Uh, in my head, I hated going to church. Um, there's still some things about the liturgy part that I particularly see as more oppressive than liberating, uh, which we'll get into that. Uh, but uh, then I started getting more involved. I had so many questions about why is the, the Lutheran church um, why is everything so traditional? Why are we reading out of a book, standing up, sitting down? And then I got pushed away to go into Sunday school and, and confirmation classes and uh, things that people my age at the time, high schoolers could go to that aren't getting in the pastor's way or the church's way. Uh, but I kept being asked to preach like quarterly. And then by the time I'm 16, 17 years old, I get asked to uh, be a keynote speaker at an MLK service, which I didn't even know churches did that until I was probably sophomore, junior in high school. And at the end of speaking at that, I mean, we're talking probably about 300, 400 people are there. Uh, the assistant to the bishop says, have you ever thought about going to college? My mind's like, no. <laughs> I uh, just, I never saw brothers that look like me that were going to college. I thought, you know, my, my parents went, my, my sisters had scholarships to go. So they were all in school or about to go to school. No, they were all in college at this time or, or graduated with a master's. But I didn't see that for me. I, I always knew I wanted to study business or do something in finance. Um, but I just, that, that whole church thing, I was like, nah, that's, that's not for me. Um, but I would go to the church camps, go to the different events that they had for us. And when they said that if you go to this college in Wisconsin, uh, they'll pay for everything. I zoned out, Chris. I don't know what was said after that. After I heard Wisconsin, I'm from Atlanta. I'm like, nah, I'm good. Uh, but my parents are like, boy, we're going to Wisconsin just to check it out, just to see. So we did a college tour, three different college visits, uh, three or four in Chicago, Indianapolis. Uh, we even looked at uh, where I ended up going to school ultimately in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which 
you know, shout out to Kenosha. They're, they went through all this stuff last summer um, within their riots and protests, which I knew the area and the community leaders to this day that reached out to me, including the president of my alma mater, um, Carthage. So I ended up going to Carthage. I got my degree in finance and public relations. And then I went directly into seminary because it was free. But I had this whole, uh, I, I think it definitely was where Kairos, um, God's time and Kronos, that chronological man's time, human's time, excuse me. Can you met. break that down real quick for the listeners, Kairos yes, and Kronos? Yeah, definitely. So um, we, we look at these two Greek words, vernaculars for, for time. And um, in Ecclesiastes 3, it talks all about time, but it breaks it down for us where in Greek, there's um, the, the first word chronological, excuse me, chronos, which is a derivative uh, stemming from chronological and orderly time. I, I say it's a human's time. Um, some people say man, woman's time. I'd say it's, it's people's time. Uh, I want my thing now. I want to get my stimulus check now. I need to be saved right now. Uh, but then we have Kairos. Uh, many of us hear about this Kairos moment, a godly moment in time. I just say that's our creator's time. Um, too many of us, we believe that we're operating uh, in Kairos, but we're really operating in Kronos. And I believe we're still doing that, especially the CDC is doing that today. <laughs> They're opening things up in their time. They want people to be back to, to whatever normalcy looks like in their time, but they're not really being patient and waiting patiently and diligently on what God is trying to really make us do in God's time. So I saw both of these clashing so many times in different pivotal points in my life. And the first one was um, going to seminary. I was working at a federally qualified healthcare center uh, doing AmeriCorps my last year of college. I was doing this full-time working in a dental and health clinic, um, but also finishing my last year of college. I had just finished an internship at our Lutheran headquarters in Chicago. Uh, and I thought that's where I wanted to work my whole life. And I just didn't care for it at all. I didn't care for the bureaucracy, unfortunately. Uh, but then I went to the, the health sector and that's where I learned the principles and the training of being a community organizer. And that really clicked for me. I didn't know it was ministry until my parents were telling me, my peers were telling me, but I had projects, uh, my, my first project was to tell over 100, um, excuse me, 1,135 patients that we had for all of Kenosha County, that they no longer had insurance with United Healthcare. They pulled out of six counties in the Southeast pocket of Wisconsin. But the good news is there were three new um, HMO providers that they could pick from. Uh, and they had an open enrollment period where they could do this. I couldn't get through, yeah, yeah. It was 1,100 individual contacts or like an email to 1,100 people? 1,100 individual contacts. Wow. They had to come to the dental or the, the medical clinic. And this is the FQHC, Federal Qualified Healthcare Center. So this is public health uh, at, like, at its base grassroots. And I'm this college kid in my last, I, I was 21 years old. And I'm told to tell people who are around my age, even 18 years old, as, as young as that, legal adults, all the way up to people who were uh, on Medicare um, about this insurance dilemma that is taking place. I had no training at all, uh, was just kind of thrown in the seat. And I was on my first month of this job. So it's the beginning of the fiscal year on a federal standpoint. Uh, and I'm, I'm in college studying business. <laughs> <laughs> had to write my 100-page thesis to get my, my, my bachelor's degree uh, simultaneously all in my first semester. 
And I would start talking to these patients, these clients, if you will, about the situation that they're about to go through. Hey, by the way, your insurance is it's it's no longer going to be there because United Healthcare is pulled out of, of this particular demographic, this particular location. But here's the what you have as an option. And they would not let me get through the pitch at all. Um, some people assaulted me. People would jump over the counter and um, physically assault me. People would spit at me, curse me out, call me everything but a child of God. And I would go home in tears, broken down, beaten, battered, and bruised, if you will, uh, just asking God, you know, kind of, kind of like what we see in Luke 24, uh, my God, my God, why is thou forsaking me, right? <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out why I'm on this journey, why I'm on this road. And I don't know why, but I really felt God speaking through people who knew me well, um, like my parents, like my peers, um, like different mentors that were saying, you, you got to meet the people where they are because you have the gifts to do it. You can connect with people naturally. Um, you, you, you'll be able to make this work, but you have to meet the people where they are. And that's when I had to just go in with a different mindset, a different attitude shift, a different um, uh, sanctified imagination to see how can I speak directly to these people uh, to let them know that yes, I am part of the system. Let's get that very transparent, uh, very clear. But I'm also here to help you and not hinder or harm you. And when I learned how to shift my pitch, learned how to influence individuals who are lacking in patience, when I learned how to uh, be able to meet them where they are, scared, angry, upset, disappointed, full of despair and anxiety, um, I was able to find a natural way to connect with them where they were coming over the counter to hug me. There were tears of joy and not anger. Uh, they were screaming shouts of, of thanksgiving. Uh, people weren't putting their hands on me to hurt me, but to embrace me because they felt as though I was trying to help them. When that moment happened, Chris, it was then and only then I told myself, let me look into this seminary thing. Because I knew seminary was free because uh, of the scholarship, but I wasn't feeling it. I, I never saw pastors who were making money that was sustainable. I never met Black Lutheran pastors that weren't beaten down and, and upset that they couldn't retire on time, that were paid low wages. I mean, it was as if the Black pastor dollar was at least uh, 80% in depreciation compared to the white pastor dollar. And I just said at 20, 20 21, 22, that's not the life for me. Um, I had stock market dreams. I, I, was living, I was living in Chicago during my internship, loved East Wacker Drive, the financial district, had plenty of contacts there that said, you know, we can get you a job out of college making $60,000. Because in our mind, we're trained to believe uh, as people of African descent, you, you get that job out of college, you end up making six figures. That's the goal. You get that pension, that 401k, 403b and you just work for the next 30, 40 years, and then you retire on time. And I was hearing that even from my own father, um, a black man who has been in the system of, of oppression based off of um, jobs that did not value um, his mental intellect. They did not value his self-worth. They did not value his character, but they also did not value his drive. So to see a black male that was being treated so poorly by a system, uh, by uh, corporate America, and just by our society, and him telling me, you're going to do better than me. You're, you, you are going to do better than me. Look at how exposed you've been. 
um, I just knew right then and there that God had a calling on my life where whatever path I was going to go, I was going to always have this drive and determination. And I was always going to be able to uh, make a way out of no way. As long as I, as we say in Proverbs 3, 5 through 6, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean on to your own understanding. I was trusting in God with all my heart when I was in that position uh, back in Kenosha. I was trusting in God with all my heart when I went to seminary. Uh, especially my, my, my hardest eight years of life were going to the school in Wisconsin and going to the seminary in Chicago. I loved the community so much, but the school was toxic for me, both of them. I had very challenging experiences. So with that being said, I believe that's where this whole rooted methodology comes in my life. Um, I've been told by so many individuals who barely know me to folks who've known me from jump that are saying, uh, you could be dropped anywhere, planted anywhere, and you're going to thrive. I never believed that until I looked back over my life and I said, I made it out of college with these prestigious degrees, if you will. Uh, when I started college, there were out of 780 freshmen, there was about 90 that identified as Black whether they were African descent, African national, as if they were um, uh, from the motherland and, and they grew up here, uh, so they have that descent, uh, or if they were Afro-Caribbean. When I walked across the stage in 2013, there were only seven of us still standing. I was the only one who graduated with a degree in PR, and I was one of two that graduated with the finance degree. Um, when I went to seminary out of an entire school, uh, we're talking from post-grad um, to graduate students, MA students, MDiv. Um, I was the only Black male student in my entire MDiv cohort, the only Black student in my MDiv cohort for four years. Uh, and out of 130 students, excuse me, out of 300 students, I was the only one who was African-American and under the age of 40. I was 22 when I went to seminary, I got out at 26, and I had to serve a congregation as an intern, a vicar in Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. So that was like my connection because I was serving there when Jamar Clark and Philando Castile happened. Jamar Clark was murdered three blocks away from where I was living, um, right at the fourth precinct. Uh, that's where folks started really seeing some of the work that I was doing around advocacy. That's where my skills from Kenosha and community organizing were taking place. Uh, but every single place I went to, um, for some reason, I always did two things. I tried to um, meet every single Black pastor that was in my 10-mile um, proximity of where I was living, and I tried to meet um, a financial advisor. Uh, for some reason, I've been doing that ever since I lived in Wisconsin. So when I was in Wisconsin, I knew all the Black pastors in Wisconsin. They either had me preach, did something at the school, did something at the church. When I was in Chicago, um, I was preaching in most of the black churches that were Lutheran on the South side. And one in particular, Salem Lutheran Church in Park Manor where Michelle Obama grew up on 74th and Calumet. Uh, I was pastoring there for my whole last year of seminary. But in Minneapolis, um, they had a whole cohort of Twin City black pastors that I was working with. And that whole Lutheran, I had to, I had to drop that from my identity because they saw Lutheran as, um, I would say, something that was uh, an obstacle 
something that really separated them from the black experience, black community. Uh, but they didn't trust any of the black Lutheran pastors that they've encountered. Black Lutherans have always come across as elitist because Lutherans have always come across as elitist. So we have black individuals who be who grew up Lutheran or are now ordained Lutheran or came into a Lutheran church that feel as though I've made it, whatever that means. So they feel as though that they're more theologically sound, that they know how to organize better, that they know how to grow, that uh, that they just have better gifts than other denominations. And I just saw through all that BS, um, probably when I was about 22, 23, um, they always ask people, why do black men not go to church? And I started asking a lot of black men who did not go to church and their reasons were very similar to why I have a disgust for some areas of the church. A lot of, uh, I think some of the biggest demons that we will ever see are in the church. I think a lot of the biggest hypocrites we will ever see are in the church. I think a lot of the most hurtful people that I will ever experience are the ones in the pulpit and in the pews uh, that feel as though, you know, I'm greater than thou, I'm better than thou. Um, and that's where my community organizing gifts really took a place in my ministry because I said, I got to stop throwing rocks at a glass house. God's calling me to go into the house and create more durable windows. And what I mean by that, I had to be a part of the system to help it produce better results. But everybody says that, right? You know, especially when you look at the recidivism rates of our um, formerly incarcerated and returning citizens, uh, I want to go back in the community to make it a better place. I want to do this, want to do that. But when we start getting that notoriety, we see that there's a toxicity um, of being on platforms, meaning um, I, I left the hood, I left my bad situation, I left the state that I was in uh, to go and get educated, to, to do something better with my life, to be a better person. But when I look at that apocalyptic piece, if you will, in the Black community, this elitism, this talented 10th pantomime, this syllogism of if I leave my community, if I get educated, then I'll be able to be educated out of my community and do something better. That's what is ruining us as a people of color day in and day out. Mentally, I have to always process my parents left New York because they saw a better opportunity in Atlanta. I left Atlanta because all the black men who I was about to graduate with were either dead or in prison by the age of 18 or 21. When I went to Wisconsin, I realized this is only temporary. This is the season for me. When I went to uh, Chicago, I thought that was my landing place, but I was working in my time. I was working in Kronos, not Kairos. So I realized that God is saying to me, uh, I have some more work for you to do. I have some places for you to see. I've been to five out of seven continents um, in my life. I've seen quite a bit in different countries, different cultures, communities, contexts, uh, congregations and chapels. But I've also seen that there's a way where we have to be able to uh, create liberation um, out of lamentation. I've just seen so many black communities that they still lament over the lack of equal access uh, to opportunities, but that's all a residual issue that is embedded in the notion that we are fighting for equality. I reject that 
instantaneously. We as people of African descent are not fighting for our equality, we're fighting for our existence. We see that within the Black Lives Matter movement. We see that within the uh, voter suppression issues that are taking place, especially in my home state of Georgia. We see that within this pandemic that we are still in, where the one community that has the strongest lack of equal access to PPE, to, to testing, to vaccines, to healthcare is the black public. So then it makes me start thinking in a more theological and ontological sense of things that the black public is invisible to a white society that is indifferent to black life. If I could break that down for a minute, <laughs> I'm a firm believer if you will, that our Black public, those who identify as African-American, those who identify in any part of the uh, umbrella of African heritage, looking at what the United Nations has now called uh, the decade of African descent history, under that umbrella of African heritage, we have folks who are African national coming from the motherland, coming from the continent of Africa. We have folks who are Afro-Caribbean, individuals who are coming from uh, our um, uh, Caribbean islands, our areas there. We have more, I would say, Black people in South America than we do in the continent of Africa. <laughs> when I found that out at age, I think I was 23, it blew my mind. Hmm. Being in South America, the, the several times I've been blessed to go, uh, it was shocking. Uh, even though they might speak a different language uh, that's not French, not European, uh, excuse me, not English, um, and, and not Kiswahili, but speaking the language of Spanish or Portuguese, uh, that was just amazing to see. And then in the United States, we live in this country where we believe in this thing called a hyphen. <laughs> so when I learned that I was um, African American, um, I, I didn't know what that meant, but growing up in a black household, uh, my parents, both black Americans, they were always teaching and indoctrinating us in black culture. Um, my parents didn't grow up in the South, but they learned very quickly how to make soul food, food that we uh, make from the soul. So those who are listening, there's an amazing uh, series on Netflix right now called High on the Hog. There's also an amazing book called High on the Hog <laughs> that I recommend people to, um, to, to go check out. It's an amazing uh, Netflix series about um, African descent culture and food and the history around it. But just knowing that when I wake up, I don't look at myself as a black person. I look at myself as a person. And the Magyo Dehi made in the image of God. But... <laughs> When I turn on the news, when I go with my, uh, to, to my you know, cell phone, when I look at different things uh, on, on TV or when I listen to the radio and when I walk outside of, of my household, when I cross that threshold, that's when society is reminding me of who I am uh, in a physical presence, that you are a young black male. This is what society believes that you are. Uh, when I heard the word thug for the first time, um, when I lived in Wisconsin, I heard that's what we all were if we drove a certain way, if we operated a certain way. When I saw that in different cities that I lived in, I had to remind myself that uh, thugs are not born, uh, humans are born. But society labels those humans based off of their particular um, topography, 
based off of their particular anthropology that they are deemed and classified and demonized and dehumanized as a label of a thug. So in this black apocalyptic season that we're in, and I believe it's a season, I believe it's something that's ongoing. I, I still see and I wrestle with um, Mark 13, verse 37. I mean, that, that whole Mark 13, 1 through 37 passage is where we talk about the apocalypse. Uh, it's also one of the, and I believe in year B, that we always uh, refer to um, in the mainline Protestant denominations uh, as the first Sunday in Advent, the new year of the church. But Mark 13, 37, uh, it talks all about, you know, keep awake <laughs> because you don't know when that hour is coming. If you were, I wrestle with the word slave, so in my contextual alliteration, I'll say servant. If you are a servant and your master overseer is coming, you don't know when that hour is coming. You don't know when Christ is coming again. You don't know where uh, the one who is your creator is coming again. So keep awake, meaning not to physically keep your eyes open and lose all the sleep, but how do you keep your mind, your spirit, your soul fresh and alert so that you are able to receive new information? You're able to change your ways for the best, meaning if you have hatred, if you have despair, if you have anxiety in your spirit, how do you keep awake so that God is able to work in, through, and around you to create you to be the best person that God knows that you could be? So that resonates in my spirit each and every day I come across. I don't look at white people and I say, you're evil, you're the devil, all this other stuff that, that can be negative based off of what some religions believe or what some media cast and podcasts are sharing. I look at other people as human. And until we get to a level where disrespect happens, that's the only time I can make my judgment. But if we're starting on a clean slate, yes, we're going to have some preconceived notions of one another. We're going to have some implicit biases of one another. We're humans. But we have to have dialogue. We have to have conversation. Um, I. Always, it always bothered me when people were instantaneously judged for not knowing something, but they seek the answer or they, they ask the question. I believe the questions are the only way that we can get answers. We can't just assume people know things. So there's a lot of stuff when I was in college, I never knew. My parents didn't teach me about credit. Um, I didn't have a checking account or a debit card until I was 18, 19 years old. Uh, I, I didn't know about these payday lending loans. I didn't know about any of that. But I had a group of white, very affluent, privileged folks who grew up in amazing suburbs of Chicago and Madison, Wisconsin, that were introducing me to concepts like the stock market, concepts like mutual funds, concepts like credit. But I never learned how to contextualize that to a local level that I was serving uh, when I was going into food shelters, when I was going into the community doing organizing, uh, because people are very personal with their money. So I kind of wrestled all throughout my ministry. I wrestled all throughout my 20s of how to gain the trust from communities that I was serving so that I could be able to teach and implement a lot of things, a lot of, I wouldn't say loopholes, but a lot of amazing techniques and tactics that could help individuals move forward in their theological exploration. 
but move forward in a financial literacy sense. How could I teach them that on a local level? I had to learn how to change my vernacular at certain times, change my diction all the time. Um, I'm not a firm believer in code switching, but I am a firm believer that I have to meet people where they are and be my natural and authentic self within various spaces. So when I'm going into um, government-based project housing, uh, like the project, if you will, if I'm going into inner city communities where I know that um, I'm probably gonna be sold um, I won't get into all the, the, the vernacular of that or the details, but I'm gonna be sold some type of paraphernalia that's pharmaceutical marketing purposes, if you will, or I'm going to be given uh, a handgun before someone is ever gonna give me a direction of where to get food or a direction of uh, where is the closest bank or a direction of where to get medicine or a direction of uh, where I can find a Bible. Um, I have to figure out how can I be effective in that community how can I bring a skill to that community that is going to help people not harm them? But also, how do I develop trust so I can build a relationship in that community? When I look at the synoptic gospels, Jesus was relational throughout it all. When I see the issue of this black apocalyptic movement that does exist, I believe that the, the uh, crime rates of black on black crime that we talk about I believe that the issues that we're still dealing with of uh, mass incarceration for people of African descent, I believe that the wealth gap and the achievement gap that is uh, ostensationally obtuse exists in the Black community. This is all because the relationships don't exist. We fear people before we hear people. When we see an outsider come into our community, into a homogeneous community at that, we fear them. We, we wonder, who are you? Who are your people? We start asking the questions instead of receiving them and, and working with them and seeing what they're about. Now, I use that word historical trauma at the very beginning of our interview. And to break that word down, that, that terminology, if you will, uh, is traumatic experiences that have uh, perpetually existed throughout a large time frame. From slavery, we're always going to see historical trauma, payday lending, redlining, racism, classism, sexism, colorism, all residual effects of historical trauma in the black community that resulted from slavery. We had black folks who were owning black slaves at one point, indentured servitude that still exists to this day. So when people ask me the question, Lewis, do you ever see the black public advancing? We have Kamala Harris, we had Barack Obama. Don't you see the black public advancing? There's a generational divide on that answer. Those like my parents who are boomers, they would probably argue and say, yes, the black public is advancing. I never thought I'd see a black president in my lifetime. I never thought I'd see uh, an African descent and uh, Asian American uh, vice president who's a female in my lifetime. We put all of our hope in Jesse Jackson. So when, when he didn't make it, you know, we never thought that was gonna happen. But then when you talk to the millennials, 
which um, I definitely possess many of the negative traits that other generations see in us. I, I definitely possess that. That's probably why I move around so much. That's one of the negative traits that, that we possess, but it's the way in which that we learn uh, more uh, extemporaneously and experimentally. I don't see us advancing. I think that we do have things that were much better today than other, than other generations that I stand on their shoulders to be where I'm at. But just like those other generations that came before me, that's all I can do for the generations that are coming after. They're gonna be more equipped. They're gonna be uh, more witty, uh, much more intelligent, much more intellectual, much more gifted. But the Lord's not expecting perfection. The Lord's expecting progress. So if I can be the best person today that God has created for me to be, if I can stop competing against my neighbor, my brother, and my sister, if I can only compete against the person who I look in the mirror each and every day and say, I want to be better than that person was yesterday, today. I want to be better tomorrow than this person is today. Then and only then I can see an advancement for people of African descent. Yes, we have all these amazing opportunities. Yes, we don't have to go to only historical black colleges and universities that were set up out of the black church experience historically because those were the only areas that we were allowed to be educated. Now we can go to PWIs, predominantly white institutions. Now we can go to Ivy League schools. Uh, now there's scholarships, even though affirmative action might've had its place, uh, they still create diversity and inclusion scholarships. Yes, now we can finally come out openly as LGBTQIA plus communities and be able to be a part of uh, black organizations like uh, Black Lives Matter or like different um, uh, diversity communities that exist, uh, like the NAACP. We don't have to just stay in the shadows or stay in um, different subset groups and subsidiary groups. Um, I do believe that there is advancement, but I don't believe that we are as far as where we should be. I don't see the progress when I see black and brown lives that are being slaughtered uh, throughout the legal system. I don't believe it's just open season uh, in the streets. I believe it's open season in the classrooms where you still have dissertation boards and committees that will drag a student all throughout the process, making them spend their money, making them go through uh, different uh, traumatic experiences in the educational classroom space and still not grant them the award that they've earned. Where I see that the academy it's filled with affluent uh, individuals who set the system and create the system instead of making it a better system for equality so that we have a level of egalitarianistic education in our society. So when we see that um, there's a, a, a individual by the name of Willie Lynch, uh, scholars are still trying to say is that individual um, a myth or are they actually real? Uh, but the story was, a, it was a, an overseer, a slave master that said, uh, if you make the Negro fight one another, they will end up ruining their entire race. And you can sit back and watch. That exists today. That's not new. Technology is advanced. But that is one of the main apocalyptic issues that we face on a daily basis. Instead of us saying we all do better when we all do better, we as people of African descent heritage under this African heritage umbrella, 
we see so many subsections of black people, Africans who have an issue with African-Americans, Afro-Caribbeans that have issues with Afro-Caribbeans, my wife being of Jamaican descent, I didn't know that uh, Haitians and Jamaicans had so much tension with one another. When I go to Harlem, when I go to Manhattan, when I, when I look at the melting pot of culture, uh, I never knew that. I thought everybody was cool until she had to educate me on the side. I always knew that Africans and African Americans, African nationals, excuse me, let me say that, African nationals and African Americans uh, had a tension going on. I see it in Baltimore all the time. But when I go over to um, any different country in the continent of Africa, I went to Tanzania, I went to uh, Uganda, I've, I've uh, been to Egypt on the north side, um, I was embraced. And that was only because of my blue passport. People looked at me as American. They don't believe in the hyphen that I said earlier that exists. In this country that we live in, the land of the free, right? I always see that the black public is invisible to a white society that is indifferent. They don't know what's going on in the black experience, which ends up birthing assimilation so we're taught to assimilate so that we can graduate, that one day we'll be allowed the freedom and the privilege to participate. We see that all throughout our historical themes and context in policy. We see that in politics. We see that in the church. We see that in the academy. We see that in the United States Department of Defense. Do I ever think that's going to change? No. As long as some type of ideology of Darwinism exists, it's not going to change. Do I think it could get better one day? Possibly. I believe that Gen Z, this generation that, that is uh, the, the TikTok and Snapchat and all that stuff, you know, I'm, Chris, I'm old, right? I'm thinking MySpace still, you know. <laughs> So, I heard you say that, yeah. <laughs> I thought MySpace. I haven't heard that in a while. Yeah, yeah. So when I see these generations that are curating and creating, but, but, but you just turned thirty, two just weeks turned. or something. Yeah. Oh yeah. Happy yeah. birthday. Yes, sir. So you're Thank you're you. a bit of a cusper, also. You're you're just old enough not to be Gen Z by probably six or eight years or something like that. Right. Right. But so New York Times created an article saying that the uh, age of millennials are age 25 to age 40. Okay. So 1981 uh, is, is the, the latest you could be born, or the earliest, excuse me. I thought that was phenomenal. I, I never thought of somebody 40 years old would be considered yeah, a millennial. Old for millennial, yeah. I would <laughs> yeah. think mid-30s or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I thought. And then when I heard 25, I said, wow. I, I always thought that was the generation below, anybody under 30. Um, but it's very interesting. And I, I love the millennial generation. I'm, I'm, I'm very proud to be a part of it, no matter what the negativity people say. I think that we're some of the most passionate people that folks will ever meet. But I think that we're some of the most innovative folks that people will ever meet. No doubt. And we're trying to bridge generations because of this generational privilege and achievement gap that exists in our country today. COVID just is showing these gaps that exist. But how is the black community going to move forward in this, in this journey? How is the black community, the black public going to advance in these next hundred years? 
the, one of the things I believe that this generation below millennials and the generation that's coming after that, they don't, they don't care about race and culture and, um, and, and different ethnic backgrounds. Uh, they don't judge it, they embrace it. When I'm talking to um, youth in the community, when I see, it looks like the United Nations and so many of the schools these days, that they're, they're proud of their culture and their heritage, but they're not tripping on this person is light skin, this person is dark skin, this person, um, they, they're, they're fair skin, this person, uh, they're, they're not the right kind of, um, of, of Latino, Latinx, Hispanic, uh, wh whatever the terms are uh, with people that are black, people that are Latino, people that are European, Anglo, uh, people that are um, part of Asia, they're not tripping on all that. Their whole thing is how do we get this work done? <laughs> you, you know how to code. I know how to market. You know social media. Let's get in the room and crank this thing out. And that's how we end up getting uh, amazing different elements of, of just what Silicon Valley is able to produce is because they're taking, they're investing uh, in this generation that is truly lacking in patience. And I love seeing it each and every day. I love seeing that there are folks who are in high school that said, I don't need to go to college to be successful, but I need to be in a community, even if it's virtual, that is going to allow me to grow because I'm more concerned about honing my gifts, growing my gifts and sharing my gifts to make this world a better place. Our generation, the millennials, we're torn because there's a baton that's been dropped from generation to generation. And I think this baton of not being self-centered <laughs> has been dropped. I think that this baton of only worry about yourself, get a government job, work for the man, and do whatever you have to do to survive, all that's been dropped from generation to generation where I still am talking to Gen X individuals to this day that they believe that a government pension or 401k is the only way that they can retire. When millennials, they're not thinking about that right now. They're also not in the let's live for the now. They're just cautious. <laughs> They don't wanna make the same mistakes that they saw their parents and grandparents and older siblings make. They don't wanna work that nine to five. Being a digital nomad is where they wanna be. But the generation below us is watching our every single move. So when I see youth and young adults that aren't millennials, those, that, those folks from age 13 to, to 22, that are watching, how is Pastor Tillman going to re respond in this situation? Somebody reached out to him, called him out of his, his name as contest. How is he going to respond? The only thing that I can teach them is that you are only responsible for your actions and reactions to situations. If I can show that and not have to speak it, then I'm doing my part for the generations that are coming behind. When I look at the apocalyptic experience within an eschatological mindset and vantage point of someone who is black, I don't need to worry about what's gonna happen in the future because God is in control from day one. 
I'm often reminded of this particular uh, quote, uh, the, the bad news is that time flies, but the good news is that you are the pilot. I, I like to change that and say, uh, the good news is that God is the pilot. <laughs> Our creator is the pilot. Our creator is the one that's allowing us to see different things, but navigate in different ways too. In the season of COVID-19 that we're in, we have been called to curate and create new things to make a new mindset shift. Church, traditional church will never be the same, no matter how many folks try and put masks and uh, temperature and thermometer checks and uh, sanitizer every single week so they can go back to what normal is going to look like. Church is never going to look the same. I'm a firm believer in that. Church has to change. Church has to be outside of the four walls. Church has to be within the people. The organized tradition of, of what that's going to look like as soon as Gen Z is done carrying that baton and the millennials that aren't too influenced by Gen Z learn what church could look like it's going to be different forever. These funerals that I'm doing, I've never thought in a million years that I'd have a live stream funeral. I've done funerals, Chris, where the only, uh, I would say physical body in the sanctuary other than me was the casket of the loved one that is deceased. Everybody else is tuning in. I've done virtual baptisms, virtual communion, and we see that folks who are stuck on tradition and stuck on that heritage that existed back in the 1500s for whatever reason it did, and they're trying to make it work for the year 2021, I had to reject a lot of that. And I got, I got my hand slapped, I got in trouble, but I don't regret anything I did and I still do it. Because now we're seeing that God is allowing for us to be the church in ways that we never would have dared to dream or imagine before. So just like I said in, in that uh, Second Corinthians passage, I'm so thankful for cracked clay pots that we all are broken. We've all been beaten, battered, and bruised. That same passage in the seventh verse talks about how uh, we're hard-pressed. That, that we've been molded, we've been shaped, we've been crafted. Uh, we see that the God that we serve has a purpose for each and every single thing that is going on in our lives. It's not for us to understand that purpose, but it's, for, it's up to us to trust in that purpose and trust in that process. So many Americans lost their jobs. So many people of African descent were on unemployment. So many folks are dying from that virus and still dying today, but it's not up to us to make understanding of it. It's up to us to trust in the Lord with all of our heart and not lean onto our own understanding so that we can see, we can be, and we can hold on to God's unchanging hand in the midst of this season. Because times are filled with swift transition, right? We saw a lot happen in 2020 that we never thought we'd see. We're seeing a lot happen in the year 2021, but if I fast forward 30 years from now, our country will never be the same that it was today. But my hope and my faith is not built in the generations. It's not built in the theology that man creates. My hope and my trust is built in in the one who died 40 and two generations ago on Calvary. That, that's the one who I believe that when we look at the black theological experience, 
we don't live uh, in time, we live for time. We, we, we live for an understanding that the birth, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it happened for a reason. We believe in the blood of Jesus Christ, but we really believe in the power, the grace, the mercy, the hope, and the favor of Jesus Christ knowing that God is going to have our back no matter what we go through, whether it's foreclosure, incarceration, bankruptcy, whether our car was repoed and that was the only way that we could do transportation, whether we have folks who are dying in sickness or whether we have new life that is coming in health, we understand that Jesus is in the midst of every single mess and every single message that we are going to go through. So that apocalypse it's happening on god's time but god is trying to figure out how are we as humans going to order our steps so that we can fall into god's plan of action so that we can fit into god's plan of action chris it bothers me when i see so many pastors just so many and particularly i think it's just (laughs) I really think it's just because it's it's the black church is under scrutiny all of the time. I see it all the time, but I see so many issues of the black church. When I think about the theological implications of, of same sex and gifted individuals who identify as same sex or identify in the LGBTQIA plus all those letters community but they're not fully embraced in the church that they grew up, but they're some of the most gifted musicians. They can be some of the most gifted preachers, some of the most gifted Christians that have ever crossed the threshold that are not accepted. When I think about the ways in which that uh, the traditions that worked back in Dr. King's time and before of why the black church existed, but we still have black leaders that don't want to change from that because it's it's too scary. They don't trust it. Or worse, so many black leaders that leave the black tradition to join a mainline Protestant denomination that's predominantly white because they feel that they've arrived. They feel like that is their Mecca. They feel like if a white person can accept what I'm doing, then it's legitimate because it's been validated. And they lose their cultural identity, authenticity, and their cultural heritage. I wrestle with that. I don't believe that it's a black issue that stemmed out of nowhere. I do believe that race plays a a huge factor in that resulting from slavery and probably even prior to slavery. But when I see the amount of black clergy that would rather sit in positions of comfort and be silent and just collect the check than getting their hands dirty, getting in the trenches and doing the work. And some of the work is just being able to do what we're doing, having these conversations, no matter how long or short the conversation may be. Some of the work is getting in the trenches and getting your hands dirty and shaking hands and using the PPE, but but working with people to get equal access to PPE, to COVID-19 care kits, to uh, testing that's free instead of charging people for a test helping people get equal access to vaccines instead of wanting to have a vaccine clinic so that your church runs the yard. 
I wrestle with all that stuff. And then the part that breaks my heart out of it all, which I think the apocalyptic piece is still in, in, in effect, we create what I call an oppression Olympics. An oppression Olympics meaning that instead of us embracing being able to dialogue and being able to uplift one another off of our different oppressive uh, violations that we've been uh, having to live through, we'd rather one up one another, we'd rather compare our oppression, and we'd rather tell folks, I've had it worse than you. We've seen that generation, uh, generation to generation within different ethnic faith groups. We've seen this generation to generation within different ethnicities. But when we get different cultures together, we see it more than ever. The conversation I've always heard for the past, uh, I would say 18 years, is who had it worse, uh, the indigenous population, the black population, or the Jewish population? I'm just going to ask you a question on this because the, the, in a minute, I want to ask you about the terminology, but been thinking yeah. about this since the last time we spoke, and I want you to come right back to what you're saying. I started thinking we shouldn't, again, I can be completely off base and, and just not even close to where I should be. But I started thinking we should be talking about oppressed peoples as, as a sort of terminology rather than BIPOC or, um, you know, some other sort of like, kind of catchy word to try and catch the zeitgeist of the times that the the problem here is the the construct itself is about monarchy um you know people at the top people at the bottom and oppression and, and we need to flatten this hierarchy mm -hmm. in a variety of ways so i just want to throw that into what you're about to say and see see if that fits into what you're talking about indigenous uh, oppression olympics indigenous people black people brown people asian people jewish people you know I agree. I agree. That's an egalitarianistic endeavor that we're trying to one day find equal access to. I don't believe in hierarchies of why they exist. I also don't believe in centralized leadership. Um, I'm on that tail end of the millennials that, that feel that way versus uh, many individuals that believe in uh, individuals that are not the higher end of the millennial spectrum and, and older that believe in, you know, we need another Dr. King. <laughs> We, we need to have centralized leadership. Uh, I want a president that is going to care for all people and show that. Do I, I want to see a leader that looks like me? Absolutely. I mean, because I just don't see it enough. But in the final analysis, I, I want to see somebody who cares for all people. Um, that that whole metaphor that you brought up a few seconds ago, I'm, I'm fully in favor of it. I wanna dismantle oppression Olympics by any means. I want to be able to talk to folks that come from different backgrounds where my story is received, but their story is received as well. And we learn how to build together. I believe in the human symbolic of activity of how we as people, um, participate in dialogue and community and, and also participate in conversation. Um, our, I'd say our, our largest setback of why we cannot advance in this country, uh, whether you're of the same ethnic origin, national origin, or, or just 
of the same faith origin is the way that we communicate. We listen to respond. We don't listen to receive. 